Well, hello, Bell Press. For those of you that I don't know, uh, I'm um, Annie Duncan. I'm the pastor here in the Belong and Grow department. And um, I, I'm just curious. Oh, and welcome to those who are, are watching on the podcast. Glad you are tuning in. Um, I'm curious, how many of you have not heard me preach before? Just raise your hand. Okay, so you all need to be warned. Uh, there are times when I preach, when I'm talking about God's love and God's faithfulness, that sometimes I cry, and I just want you to know it's okay. Like, don't mistake in my tears for weakness. I just, I cry a lot. Like, you can ask my family, you can ask my husband. It happens all the time. So um, that will probably happen, and if it does, don't worry. I, I recover, and I move on. Um, a few years ago, I was traveling back from Sierra Leone with a group of young adults, and we had an eight-hour layover in London. And I had never been to London before, and so I ditched my group that I was traveling with, and I said, see ya, I'm going to go to the city. Uh, I'm going to London because I want to see the sights. And on my way out of the airport, I asked somebody that kind of looked official this question. I said, how soon do I have to be back here in order to make an international connecting flight. And he said, oh, an hour before your flight takes off. <laughs> yeah, you know where this is going. I, that sounded great to me, because that meant I had about seven hours in the city, so I was off. I went uh, to London, I saw Big Ben, I went to the flower market, I grabbed a coffee and a cafe, I grabbed a beer and a pub, I crammed as much into that time as I could. Um, but as, as that hour window started to approach when I needed to be back to the airport, I started making my way back to the tube, and it wasn't until I got back on the tube that I started to wonder if I should have been back to the airport sooner. Uh, and that wonderment led to the next, like, who was that guy that I asked for advice? Like, what did he know? And my heart started to race, and I knew I had made a mistake that I should have been back at the airport a lot sooner. But in the midst of like me being on the verge of a panic attack, in the midst of that, I felt like I heard so clearly, no matter what anyone tells you, you're going to make this flight. So I went from panic to hearing this voice and then filled with peace. And I took that as God's voice and that became my mantra for the next 90 minutes. No matter what anyone tells you, you are going to make this flight. And so I, I make my way back to the airport, I get off at the wrong terminal, but I finally find my, my um, counter that I'm supposed to check in, and I have to flag down an agent, and I, I tell her, I'm, I'm here, I'm to check in for my flight to Seattle. And she shook her head at me, and she said, well, that, they checked in two hours ago, and they are now all boarded. No matter what anyone tells you, you're going to make this flight. And so I said to her, well, I'd, I'd really like to make this flight. She said, that's not going to happen. I said, I'm meeting up with my team. Is there any way I can make this flight? And she said, well, if you give me your passport, I'll see about getting you on the next flight, but you're not going to make this flight. So she disappears into this mysterious room behind the counter, and she's gone for what seems like forever. But when she comes back, she's got a security guard with her, and she hands me back my passport, and she says, I don't know who you know, but you are making this flight. I know who I know. <laughs> and the security guard walked me through all the checkpoints. I bypassed all the lines. He walked me all the way to my gate. I boarded the plane. They sealed the door, and we took off. I made the flight. It was awesome. Have you ever been so sure of something that nothing could convince you otherwise? In the story that Dana just read from Acts, Paul gets bit by a snake, and it doesn't even face him. 
And the part that is missing for me in this story is where Paul freaks out, snake, I just got bit, I'm gonna die. That isn't in the story, it should be, but it's not there. Like my own mantra, no matter what anyone tells you, you are going to make this flight, Paul had his own God-inspired mantra, no matter what happens, you are making it to Rome. Before Paul gets bit by the snake, he is aboard a ship as a prisoner, along with 276 other passengers and prisoners, and they get caught in a storm. But not just any storm, like a traumatic, raging storm that tosses them at sea for two weeks. And the crew gives up hope when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. But Paul sees things differently and says, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So in the midst of the storm, while the rest of the crew are thinking, this is it, we are so done for, Paul is holding tightly to God's promise that no matter what happens, he will make it to Rome. No ship, no storm, no, sh no shipwreck or snakebite could convince him otherwise which is why he doesn't freak out over some poisonous venom because he knows that it is not gonna to be toxic to him. Everything we experience in life gets filtered through some kind of mantra. And I've used this phrase mantra a number of times now and, and mantra can mean a lot of different things but for this sermon's purpose, I should probably define what I mean. I could have used the word mindset, but mantra gets at something that's a little bit deeper. It's closer to like our core. It's what we believe, not just with our mind, but with our heart and our soul as well. A mantra is a voice that's at our core. It has to do with a belief within our heart. It's what we listen to. It's what we believe in and then live by. It's a conviction. It's a rhythm in which we repeat over and over again. And a lot of different voices can author our mantras. So take jumping off a high dive, for example. You, first off the high dive, you have a little girl, and she gets herself to the edge of the high dive, and she looks over the edge, and she says to herself, I can do it, I can do it, a mantra of courage. Next off the high dive, you have a little boy, and he inches to the edge, and he peers over, and he says, I can't do this. Oh, I can't do this, a mantra of fear. And then you have a little kid watching them go off the high dive and he's sitting down below and he's thinking to himself, what's the big deal? What, what is the big deal? It's just a high dive. Maybe a core mantra of like indifference. So same situation, but with different core voices, different core mantras. And mantras can also be tied to God's voice, God speaking over us who he's said and created us to be and speaking over us his promises. So when I was trying to make my flight home from Sierra Leone or from London, um, my mantra was, no matter what anyone tells you, you're going to make this flight. God's voice assuring me that he was with me. So that's, that's what I mean by mantra. And everything we experience in life gets filtered through some sort of mantra. Whether it's the voice that says, says I can do this, or the voice that says, I can't do this, or the voice that says, I don't even care, or God's voice saying, I am with you. That's what I mean by mantra. Pastor Bill Johnson recently asked his congregation this question, and I'm wondering how many of us here can resonate. 
He asked his congregation this, how many of you, you've become so fearful over something, so anxious over something, you couldn't get it out of your mind, you couldn't stop thinking about it all evening long, long into the night, it kept you up at night. How many of you have lost sleep over thinking stupid things? All right, so we know you know how to meditate. <laughs> now we just need to change the subject that you're focusing on. Are you gonna feed yourself on that which kills or are you gonna feed yourself on that which gives life? When we listen to a core mantra of fear, it kills, it disengages us. So what are you listening to? That which brings life or that which brings death? Here's another travel story, but this one actually takes place on a plane. I've made it on the plane. And I'm traveling alone and a girl sits down beside me and she's about the same age as me. And we don't say anything to each other. And isn't there like a flying rule that after the flight takes off, if you haven't said anything, you just don't after that because it's like weird and awkward? So we kept to ourselves. But shortly after we'd reached cruising altitude, I could tell that she was crying. And she flipped down her tray and she put down her little airline pillow on the, on the tray and she put her head down and she just started to weep. And I felt God nudge me to say something to her. I mean, here she was sitting elbow to elbow beside me, and she was weeping. A decent person would at least give her a tissue or say, hey, are you okay? But my heart was racing, and I tried to ignore it. And I thought to myself, oh, just, just keep quiet. She probably just wants to be kept to herself. But I kept on feeling God nudge me, say something to her. Say something to her, which I did not do. She cried the entire flight. And I sat there and said nothing. I didn't say one word. During that flight, fear totally won. I listened to a mantra of fear which said, don't say anything, don't say anything. And I kept quiet. Our core beliefs, our mantras, have a direct correlation to what we do and what we say. So we've looked at three stories in which I've talked about these core beliefs, these mantras. Paul's story, my London layover story, and then this recent in-flight story with this woman. Paul's core belief was God's promise that he was going to make it to Rome. And in my London layover, my core belief was God's assurance that he was with me, that I would make my flight. And every time I reflected on this story, I've always remembered how clearly I heard God's voice. But it wasn't until I was writing this sermon that I realized, yes, it was amazing that I heard God's voice. But what was even more amazing was God met me in the midst of poor planning like irresponsibility. I should not have made that flight. I, should, I deserved to miss that flight. But God met me in the middle of that anyway. And when the girl was seated next to me and was crying, I was nudged to comfort her, but my core belief was fear. Fear told me to keep quiet. And so I did. And for a long time after that, I felt regret, like, oh, I should have said something to her. Every time I remembered that situation, I would beat myself up over it, thinking, oh, why didn't you say anything? I mean, God was nudging me, but also every ounce of human decency was nudging me just to say something to her. And after years of regret, feeling regret over this, I felt like God said, you know what, Annie? Stop beating yourself up over it. I'm her savior. You are not her savior. Yeah, you missed that nudge. Just get the next one which replaced my regret with excitement and expectancy and God's forgiveness. So I may have missed that nudge, but I so want the next one. And so Bell Press, hear that for yourselves. Don't get hung up on missed nudges. Just be excited for the next one. When we can learn to wire ourselves to God's promises, to God's voice, it gets really exciting because God replaces our fear with his promises, with his truth. 
In the Pathfinder sermon series that we just got finished with, we repeatedly heard how if we want to experience God more, then we, are, we should respond to his nudges more. We've been encouraged to just give it a try. To, if you sense God directing you to do something, to just try it out. And it's okay if we get it wrong. The point is to be open and expectant to God moving. And this is going to look different for all of us. God is going to speak to me differently than he's going to speak to you. Jesse Rice recently said in a webinar, God's will for our lives is not a roadmap, it's a relationship. God nudging us, it's because he wants to be in relationship with us. If God was roadmap-based, whenever I missed a nudge, that would immediately send me back to go, and I would have to start over again. But God is not roadmap-based. He is relationship-based. So if I miss a nudge, that's okay. I just keep on listening and wait for the next one. A few weeks ago, I was driving to get breakfast, and I really wanted this amazing yogurt from Whole Foods, so I was en route to Whole Foods. You could say, like, my mantra was yogurt, yogurt, yogurt. It was a mantra of desire. But then I had this thought, what if I ask God where to go for breakfast? Well, does that even matter to God, where I get my breakfast? And so I asked God, God, where should I go for breakfast? And in doing so, I tabled my hunger, and I was open to wherever God might be leading me. Because I believe that big stuff mattered to God, but also the little things, the everyday mundane tasks that we do, like grabbing breakfast. So I felt nudged to go to Cafe Cicera, which is not a surprise. I go there all the time, but I really wanted that yogurt. So I took that as God nudging me because I wanted him to say, Whole Foods, go there, but he didn't. So I went to Cafe Cicera and I grabbed a muffin. And as I turned to leave, I came face to face with a young adult that had been on my mind all week long right there at Cafe Cicera. And that was so much better than the yogurt. And even if nothing monumental had happened at that cafe, I was, I, it was still worth the try, because I was so excited. God, you've got me here, what are you gonna do? What's gonna happen? So give it a try, Bell Press. Nudges are exciting and encouraging. They're not fearful and disengaging. They're an invitation, they're not pushy. I'm sure Paul missed a nudge here or there, and I've already told you how I have. Responding to nudges is how we grow in our faith, because when we respond to them, we see just how real and present God is. During seminary, I interned at a very small church in Seattle, and during one of my very first Sundays there, uh, we all headed to the basement after worship for snacks and refreshments and coffee. And I was mingling down there, meeting new people, um, and while I was doing that, a young couple came over to me, and they said that they needed help. I immediately felt useful as an intern. I said, I'm Annie, how can I help you? And they said, well, their RV had a flat tire, and they needed it fixed because they had to get to Utah as soon as possible. And so I, I told them, okay, well, um, I can probably help you with that. I know some people in the congregation that can help you with your tire. Um, but as we were talking, I, I, I felt like I should ask them, you know, what's so important in Utah? What, what are you doing in Utah? And if you've checked out, this is the point where you should check back in because you are not going to believe what they said to me. So I asked them, what, why are you trying to get to Utah? And they say to me, well, you see, we are vampires and we need to get to Utah because we don't want to be vampires anymore. So we got to find the vampire that bit us so that she can unbite us. <laughs> what in the world? I'm listening to them, and as I am, I'm looking around because I'm like, clearly this is a joke. Like, this is like intern hazing at a church. <laughs> but 
I didn't see anybody like laughing. I was the only one freaking out. And so I'm standing there with this couple and clearly they believe what they are saying to me. So then I start looking around for the head pastor because I'm like, where is he? This is, this is totally a situation he should handle and not me. This was not covered in seminary. But then this thought occurred to me, they don't have to go to Utah. They don't have to go to Utah. You know, the kind of thought that isn't your own, it just lands there and you either dismiss it or you listen to it. And at this point in my life, I had learned to listen to those thoughts. Clearly seemed to be God. And so I went with it and I said something like this to them. I said, well, if you don't want to be vampires anymore, you don't have to go all the way to Utah because I believe that Jesus is more powerful than the vampire that bit you. So I can pray for you right now. We can just pray and we can undo whatever spell you're under. We can do that. You don't have to go all the way to Utah. And think of all the gas you'll save. <laughs> and so I prayed for them. And it was one of the weirdest prayers I've ever prayed. <laughs> but I prayed with so much authority because I really believe that. If I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that we have the same authority that Jesus had, then I had to believe that they didn't have to go get unbit. So weird. But so I prayed with them and then we talked for a little bit and then they, they mingled some more and when they came to say goodbye, they came, they came up to me and they said, thank you so much for praying with us. And this is what always makes me cry. <laughs> they said, thank you for praying with us. We've been to several other churches and gotten kicked out of so many of them. So thank you for not kicking us out. Thank you for listening to us. And Bell Press, that breaks me because everything in me wanted to kick them out. <laughs> It felt so weird. But it wasn't until God nudged me and said, hey, just pray with them, that I saw them how God sees them. So, Bell Press, may we be a church that welcomes everybody that walks through these doors. They might just be vampires needing prayer. So join me. In John 14, 12, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And this verse is all about authority. Jesus says that if we believe that he is who he says he is, then we're going to do what he's been doing, which is what? Well, Jesus had compassion. He listened to people. He loved people. He healed them. He raised people from the dead. He cured the sick. He cast out demons. If it had been Jesus talking with two vampires instead of me, he would have had compassion on them. He would have loved them. And then he would have unvampirized them so they could be whole. But when it was just me and the vampires, my first reaction was, I don't have any authority. Where's the head pastor? Oh my gosh, I got to get out of here. But in that moment, even though I wasn't the head pastor, I was just the intern, I could be their pastor, just as any of you could have done if you were talking to them instead of me, because we have been given Jesus' authority. In Acts, when the islanders saw that the snakebite didn't harm or kill Paul, they thought he was a god. And the islanders were almost right. Paul was not a god, but Paul had God's authority. So Bell Press, where in your life are you giving yourselves a red light when Jesus is giving you a green light? Where do you think you don't have any authority when Jesus says to you, go, I have given you my authority? There are things that Jesus has given us the green light to do. Last week, Scott Dudley talked about how when we bring the kingdom to those around us, how it's going to influence people, it's going to transform lives, and it's going to spark revival. And when we bring the kingdom, we move in Jesus' authority. 
This explains why Jesus makes that crazy statement that we'll do even greater things than these. We're going to do greater things than Jesus? Jesus, the Son of God? How are we supposed to do greater things than him? Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. And when he said that, he knew that that meant that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all of us. So he answers my question right there. How are we going to do greater things than Jesus did? Because we are all filled with the same spirit that Jesus was filled with. So doing greater things has more to do with numbers than does how many people I'm going to raise from the dead. It's not us being competitive with Jesus. It's multiplication. It's a multiplication of his authority. So imagine this one dot on the east side is Jesus. And Jesus says to us, go. He commissions us to go in his authority and to do what he's been doing. And when we do, we bring the kingdom to the east side, and that one dot becomes a hundred, a hundred transformed lives moving in Jesus' authority, and a hundred soon becomes 400, and then soon that 400 goes viral. We can do greater things than Jesus did because there are more of us, and Jesus has called us to go. This is our time. The world is so desperate for it. The world around us needs us. And Jesus has commissioned us to go, filled, equipped with his Holy Spirit. So bell press. Keep listening to God's voice. Keep God's promises at your core. And when you do, you're going to see what God's up to more and more, and you're going to respond to his nudges and move in God's authority. So who wants more of this? Who wants more of God's voice in your life? Who wants more of those nudges, more of God's authority? If you want more, I simply want you to open up your hands in response as I close in prayer. God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you promise us that you are always with us, that you are for us and not against us, and that there's nothing that we can do to be separated from your love. So God, we open our hands and we ask for more of you. We ask for more of your Holy Spirit to fill our lives. God, help us to hear your voice clearly. Tune our ears to hear you. God, give us the courage to respond where you are leading. We want more of you, God, simply because you are good. You are a good Father who loves us, so see our open hands and fill them with your love, with your power, with your authority. Amen.